Welcome to the March 16, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to give you a quick overview of what's new in Annals since our last podcast. Predicting the clinical trajectory of individual patients hospitalized with COVID-19 is challenging but necessary to inform good clinical care. While prognostic tools have been developed, they've largely have been based on data present at the time of hospital admission. The authors of the first article I'll mention thought that a more useful tool would be one that could predict dynamic risk for progression from moderate disease to severe illness or death in patients with COVID-19 at any time within the first two weeks of their hospital stay. Using data from five hospitals in Maryland and Washington, D.C., from over 3,000 patients hospitalized between March 5th and December 4th, 2020, with confirmed COVID-19, the authors developed a model that used demographics, comorbidity, and time-varying laboratory tests and clinical signs to predict risk of progression to severe disease or death within one and seven days at any point during the first 14 days of hospitalization. The authors provide an online tool that clinicians can use to predict the course of their own patients based on readily available data. If you're caring for hospitalized patients with COVID-19, I encourage you to take a look at this article and explore the accompanying risk prediction tool. During the coronavirus pandemic, many regions across the world recommend stay-at-home orders, closure of public spaces, and physical distancing to reduce community transmission. These measures contribute to isolation, anxiety, and there's been concern that there would be a coincident increase in substance misuse. The next two articles address this issue. In the first, researchers used data from the Nielsen National Consumer Panel to compare household sales of alcohol and tobacco in April through June 2020 to the same months in 2017 through 2019. They found that national weighted alcohol and tobacco sales increased in all demographic and geographic categories comparing 2019 versus 2020, except for alcohol sales among households with an annual income of less than 20000 Relative increases in alcohol sales were higher among higher-income households, younger adults, larger households, households with children younger than 18 years, and ethnic minorities. Relative increases in tobacco sales were higher among these demographics as well. The authors note that the greater increase in alcohol sales unlikely reflects bar and restaurant closures alone because alcohol sales increased by 34%, far more than non-alcoholic beverage sales. Relative increases were higher in the same demographic subgroups reported to have increased stress and anxiety during the pandemic. However, aggregated data limit conclusions regarding individual consumption patterns. The authors call for exploration of whether increased alcohol and tobacco sales may be associated with increased health threats from substance use. And the study reported in the next article does just that by examining changes in alcohol sales and alcohol-related emergencies in Ontario, Canada, from July 1st, 2018 through June 30th, 2020. A lockdown was declared in Ontario on the 17th of March and ended on the 24th of July in 2020, with the province ordering the closure of bars, restaurants, and other non-essential businesses soon thereafter. In contrast, alcohol stores were deemed essential and remained open. The authors compared alcohol sales and alcohol-related emergencies during the first months of the COVID-19 pandemic. March through June 2020, with those in the corresponding months in the prior year, March through June of 2019. Year-to-year, -year, monthly increases in alcohol sales were highest at the onset of the pandemic, 
with $462 million in sales in March 2020 versus $335 million in March 2019, equal to a 38% relative increase. The researchers also identified that visit rates for alcohol-related emergencies increased, a phenomenon similarly observed for mental health, overdose, and violence outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Next is a commentary that discusses the Peltzman effect in relation to COVID-19 vaccination. The Peltzman effect is a phenomenon in which individuals respond to safety measures with a compensatory increase in risky behavior. The authors propose that as COVID-19 vaccines are rolled out across the globe amid messages of optimism and euphoria, public health officials will have to be aware that a vaccine heralded as a panacea to the pandemic may weaken adherence to other safety measures like social distancing and mask use. Go to annals.org to see why the authors believe that as more people become vaccinated, adherence to pandemic safety measures will become lax well before community immunity is achieved. Food insecurity, the lack of sufficient healthy food, is associated with greater body weight in adults, especially in underserved populations. In the study reported in the next article, researchers from Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Louisiana used data from the Papel study, which randomly assigned participants to a high-intensity lifestyle-based intervention or usual care for weight loss and tracked progress over 24 months to determine if food insecurity was related to weight loss outcomes. Participants' food insecurity was assessed using a brief questionnaire. Over the course of the study period, the researchers assessed differences in body weight between food-secure and food-insecure patients, accounting for a variety of patient characteristics. At 24 months, participants randomly assigned to the intensive lifestyle intervention lost more weight than those in the usual care group, regardless of food insecurity. However, the intervention seemed to be less effective among those who were food insecure. The mean absolute weight difference between the intervention and usual care groups was 5.2 kilograms among food-secure patients and 2.7 kilograms among food-insecure patients. The mean absolute weight difference between the intervention and usual care groups was 2.5 kilograms lower among food-insecure patients. According to the study authors, clinicians may want to screen patients with obesity for food insecurity. Effective weight loss programs will need to address this important social determinant of health. This month's in the clinic review addresses insomnia. Go to annals.org for practical, evidence-based advice on how to manage this very common and very difficult to manage condition that has deleterious impact on mental and physical well-being. Also on annals.org is the most recent annals graphic medicine feature titled A Time to Speak Up. It addresses the very timely topic of sensitive, non-discriminatory communication in healthcare settings. Tenofovir-based antiretroviral therapy has become first line in all major HIV treatment guidelines. Due to concerns for metabolic complications of tenofovir alpha-phenamide, or TAF, it remains unclear whether TAF should replace tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate, or TDF. Next is a prospective cohort study that assessed weight changes, new onset of overweight or obesity, and changes in serum lipids within 18 months after replacing TDF with TAF therapy. Participants were 4,852 adults living with HIV who were on TDF-containing antiretroviral therapy for at least six months. 78.7% switched to TAF and 21.3% remained on TDF. About half had a normal BMI at study entry. 
After 18 months, switching to TAF was associated with a mean weight increase of 1.9 kilograms compared to 0.4 kilograms for patients who continued on TDF. Among individuals with the normal body mass index, 13.8 who switched to TAF became overweight or obese compared to only 8.4% of those remaining on TTF. And switching to TAF led to increases in median total cholesterol, triglycerides, and LDL to HDL ratios. The authors conclude that switching from TDF to TAF is associated with metabolic adverse events, which must be considered in decision-making about HIV antiretroviral therapy. The next article is also about HIV. Immediate initiation of antiretroviral therapy, irrespective of CD4 cell count, reduces the risk of AIDS and non-AIDS-related events in asymptomatic HIV-positive persons in a standard of care. However, most HIV-positive persons initiate ART when their CD4 cell counts are less than 500. Consequences of delayed antiretroviral therapy on the risk of non-AIDS and AIDS-defining malignancies, one of the most common reasons for death among HIV-infected persons, are unclear. This multinational prospective cohort study involving more than 8,000 patients with HIV infection estimated long-term risk reduction of malignancy with immediate antiretroviral therapy. During 64,021 person years of follow-up, there were 231 non-AIDS and 272 AIDS-defining malignancies among HIV-positive persons with a median age of 36 years. The 10-year risk of non-AIDS-defining and AIDS-defining malignancies with immediate antiretroviral therapy were 2.97% and 2.5% respectively. Compared to immediate antiretroviral therapy initiation, the 10-year absolute reduction in risk when deferring antiretroviral therapy to CD4 cell counts less than 500 or less than 350 were minimal. The authors conclude that in this young cohort, effects of immediate antiretroviral therapy on 10-year risk of malignancies were small and further supportive data are needed for non-AIDS-defining malignancies. The environment in which physicians practice and patients receive care continues to change. Increasing employment of physicians, new regulatory requirements, and market dynamics can all have effects and some changes may place greater emphasis on the business of medicine. Next is a physician paper from the American College of Physicians that provides recommendations for ethical behavior in this evolving practice environment. The ACP believes that fundamental ethical principles and professional values about the patient-physician relationship, the primacy of patient welfare above self-interest, and the role of medicine as a moral community and learned profession remain unchanged and need to be retained. Recognizing that all healthcare delivery arrangements come with advantages and disadvantages and salient questions of ethics and professionalism, this policy paper examines the ethical implications of issues that are particularly relevant, including incentives in the shift to value-based care, physician contract clauses that affect care, private equity ownership, clinical priority setting, and physician leadership. The ACP believes that physicians should take the lead in helping ensure relationships and practices are structured to explicitly recognize and support the commitments of the physician and the profession of medicine to patients and patient care. It is commonly believed that the notions of sensitivity and specificity were first defined in 1947. Next is a History of Medicine article that aims to disprove this assumption. The authors show that the sensitivity and specificity of diagnostic tests were commonly assessed as far back as the early 1900s. 
The concepts of sensitivity and specificity, according to the authors, were originally immunological concepts closely associated with the development of a complement fixation reaction for syphilis. The authors trace how immunologic sensitivity and specificity evolved into diagnostic sensitivity and specificity. Clinical trials, systematic reviews, and trustworthy clinical practice guidelines are central to evidence-based healthcare. The authors of the next article believe that, similar to as has become the practice for clinical trials and systematic reviews, clinical guideline developers should be required to prospectively register clinical guidelines that are under development. The authors believe that such registration holds promise to improve the transparency of methods and reduce unnecessary duplication of guideline efforts. Historically, available guideline repositories, such as the Guidelines International Network Library, have focused on completed clinical guidelines. Although these repositories of completed guidelines are useful as a means to share knowledge and promote implementation of recommendations, they do little to promote collaboration and reduce duplication. The authors argue for the desirability of prospective guideline registration and offer suggestions for how this might be accomplished. Also new on March 16th are the latest episode of Hamill's Consult Guides. This month's topic is post-operative delirium. There are several poems in an On Being a Doctor essay, an inpatient notes commentary on timely hip fracture surgery, and an Annals on Call podcast on the under-recognition of primary aldosteronism. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Go to annals.org to explore all the new material I've mentioned and more. There are ample opportunities to earn CME and MOC credits if you do. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.